The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And how are you, Jack? Great, Father. It's great, great to, to see you. Man. You too. Absolutely. Father, we have all kinds of great emails from our inbox. Um, a variety of topics uh, kind of all over the place, but we had uh, actually two emails on the question of the took consecrations, and I would like to start with those. We uh, in particular had a viewer who has watched some of our previous episodes um, where we have discussed this matter, and uh, he takes issue with one of the things that you have, uh, one of the points you've raised in the past, Father, and he asks, where does the church say that the principle of presumed validity only applies to, quote-unquote, official consecrations. How would you answer that, Father, this idea of presumed validity? Well, he's talking about a principle of presumed validity. And uh, so I would say that actually he, he uh, has to kind of uh, refer it to the writings of Father Chikata, and uh, to some extent, Father Sanborn, I think they introduced this idea as kind of a principle of presumed validity. And um, I'm not so sure that I would agree there is a principle of presumed validity, at least not in the terms that Father Jakarta has presented it, certainly. Um, so when he, he uh, references the fact that I, I talk about this and say that, that the church has, in fact, uh, in practice, as a matter of fact, as part of her tradition, uh, accepted that when a, uh, a duly authorized minister of the sacraments functions in his official capacity and uh, testifies to the fact that he administers sacrament, that it is considered to be a fact, and it is considered to be valid. And uh, I think all one has to do is go back and, and look at the history of the Church and realize that, that that is exactly the tradition of the Church. I think I used the example of, let's say, the Archbishop of Milwaukee back in the 1930s or 40s, ordaining priests, and um, that wherever those priests might go, I mean, there was this... Uh, acceptance that they were ordained priests because it is on official record in the church, the, the Catholic Church, that they were ordained by the Archbishop of Milwaukee uh, back in whatever year they were ordained. And um, that, that, I think, is just a matter of standard Catholic practice. I think one can verify that very easily by just, you know, reference to the fact that uh, that was how the church did things. Um, but Father Jakarta and uh, Father Sanborn were bringing in something rather uh, tenuous, a kind of a, a novel idea, and they, they 
interpreted some elements of canon law regarding juridic acts as, um, well, they interpreted it their own way and applied it their own way, okay? And Father uh, Chicada wrote about that. It actually, I, I drew up an article by him on the so-called traditionalmass.org website, and he addresses the question of the validity of the Took consecrations, and uh, in the process, he kind of lays out this this idea that he has here uh, of trying to establish that Archbishop Took um, had what he calls the tiny mental minimum, which the church says makes his sacraments valid. The tiny mental minimum. That's, that's the expression that he uses. Interesting. And I, I think that's uh, kind of tells you the, the way this is going, though, that this is what he's um, basically uh, hinging the um, the validity of the two consecrations on that tiny mental minimum uh, necessary, and that somehow Archbishop Took meets that standard, which is, uh, I think, a rather uh, glaring admission on his yeah. part, anyway. <clears throat> but uh, he goes on to say in his article, he goes on to talk about the sacramental power called the apostolic succession. That's not a very that's theologically very, very imprecise. Um, the sacramental power can be transmitted, but apostolic succession uh, means that one is in the line with the apostles, uh, you know, not only in terms of validity, but in terms of legitimacy. I mean, actually, you know, you might say that schismatics, so, so for example, the Orthodox, have... Um, validity of orders, but they certainly do not possess um, apostolic succession. Uh, only Catholic bishops can claim to have apostolic succession. <clears throat> and I'm not referring to Novus Ordo bishops there, because again, uh, even apart from the question of validity, and there is a question about that with the new rites they've introduced, but are they teaching the same faith? I mean, that's part of apostolic succession, too, you know. <clears throat> so it's not just a question of validity, it's a question of legitimacy as well. So when Father Jakarta writes about the sacramental power called the apostolic succession, he's not speaking uh, accurately at all. And this is very typical of, of the looseness with which Father Jakarta writes. I mean, there are those who consider him to be, quote-unquote, kind of a great theologian. He's not a theologian at all nor is he a canonist. <clears throat> He's just expressing opinions, um, and his opinions are worth no more than, you know, his own knowledge and acumen and uh, the legitimacy of, of his applying uh, facts and principles as he sees them. And I think he, he misapplies them, especially with regard to the took... Well, we know that he misapplied... He misapplied them when it came to the question of Terry Scheibel and her death. And he came out in favor of that, basically supporting her death, is essentially what he did, uh, saying that it was perfectly in line with Catholic teaching. It wasn't. And he certainly not only mis misapplied the moral principles involved, but he did so flagrantly. Uh, as I point out in the article, the execution of Terry Schiavo, which is available online, they point out that when he quoted McFadden on the subject, 
<clears throat> he he quoted him wrongly, and um, uh, he left out the part, <laughs> the essential part, the very next sentence, uh, which he left off. By the way, was but in practice this could never be done. He left that off. And, uh, you know, again, one has to be very wary. Uh, Father Chikata can quote uh, any number of sources there, but he can also misquote any number of sources as well. People have to be very careful about this. So he talks about, you know, we're obliged, obliged to regard the consecrations of, uh, by Archbishop Nodin Tuk, uh, conferred on uh, Pierre Martin, uh, uh, well, actually, that is his name, uh, by uh, Abbe Gerard de Laurier and uh, also Moises Carmona as being valid. He says we're obliged to regard them as being valid. And then he tries to present the case why we have to regard them as being valid. His case is, is completely flawed, and uh, it's, uh, it is a very vacuous case. His point here is there's a presumption of validity when there's a notorious fact. <clears throat> he says, we all accept the fact that, that um, as he says, uh, Archbishop Took performed, performed the ceremony of consecration for Gerard Laurier and Moises Carmona, okay, in 1981. <laughs> he said it's a notorious fact that he did that because it's a notorious fact the church's principle is you have to regard it as valid. That is absolutely absurd. And when I say absurd, I mean it, it is absurd that the church would, would teach such a thing. I mean, again, I, I don't want to go through the whole thing again because we've been through it any number of times, okay? But, you know, the, the whole concept of the church saying that if there's a notorious fact, you have to regard that that applies sacramentally to the sacrament having been valid, as long as it can be, it is a notorious fact. I mean, in practice, what that would mean is that if you start a rumor and it is believed by enough people, that 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 makes the sac, uh, like a rumor of a sacrament being being performed. And um, I mean, maybe it was. I mean, maybe there is some uh, substantiation for the fact that the, the sacrament was being was performed. Okay. But if word gets out and enough people learn that the sacrament is performed, that automatically means that they must accept it as being valid, just by the very fact that it is known that the sacrament was performed. And uh, a notorious fact is something that's sort of, uh, something is called a clandestine or uh, something is called an occult fact that it's hidden. If only a small number of discrete people know about it, and they're not going to talk about it. But if you have a larger number of indiscreet people who talk about this, it becomes notorious. And as the reputation spreads that this happened, then it becomes a notorious fact. And that transition from an occult fact, you know, which is known by only a few and kept secret, to a notorious fact whereby the rumor mill spreads it, that confers validity on the, the performance of the ceremony. This is absurd. Um, so, you know, the, the fact is that if you look back in the church's history, um, you know, when someone acting on behalf of the church officially in an official capacity, capacity performed a sacrament, that it was not questioned. 
that one would have to have a, a, uh, a serious reason to question whether matter, form, and intention, matter, form, or intention were lacking. Mm-hmm. That is not true of any of the Took consecrations. He was not acting in, in any official capacity on behalf of the church in a public way. <clears throat> this was his own private enterprise that he took. One might argue that he did it in good faith, but the fact is he did wind up performing the consecration ceremonies on some very unworthy individuals. And the name that keeps coming up again and again, it's not the only one that he was a, a very unworthy individual. There were others he, he did uh, who were into the occult, uh, who were not Catholics, okay? But Jean Laverie is a very, you know, that's the name that comes up most notoriously, okay? And he conditionally uh, performed the ceremony for Jean Laverie, knowing that Jean Laverie had already been consecrated outside the Catholic Church in another ceremony by Mug, his whiteness, Mark Tugdual II of the Celtic Church, right? An occultic, uh, Gnostic religion. So, um, in any case, um, to say that uh, the very fact that a, the performance of a consecration ceremony becomes notorious confers upon it the presumption of validity is absurd. Mm-hmm. Okay? What they're talking about when they're talking about this presumption, they're talking about juridical acts, and they're talking about juridical acts that have to do with crimes. They're talking about juridical acts that have to do with, with some delict of some kind, and something that would be punishable by the law of the church. They're not talking about the validity of sacraments. So... Um, it makes sense when you're talking about, you know, a matter of... They use this, for example, when they say, okay, a couple that is cohabitating together, let, let's say they're married. Let's say they, they are married in the church, and then there's a the question of whether they actually consummated the marriage. And the church says, well, if they've lived together, then after their marriage, it is presumed that they consecrated, consummated the marriage. And you'd have to prove the contrary. There's a presumption of fact there, that they live together, it's notorious that they live together, and therefore you have a presumption that they consummated their marriage. This is the case where they might bring an effort to try to uh, dissolve the marriage somehow. Um, So, I mean, we're talking about things that have nothing to do with the validity of a sacrament, and there's absolutely no precedence in, in the church's law that, well, if if you can get the word out there and make uh, the performance of a sacrament so widely known that it's notorious and everybody's talking about it, that somehow confers upon it the character of validity and the presumption of validity so that now you have to prove that it wasn't valid. That's not the church's way of doing things. Father Chicago is simply misapplying this, this law in favor of uh, the, trying to convince people that we all have to accept it as being valid because the, fa- the, the, the performance of the right has become notorious. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not the church's thinking on this subject. I mean, I could go on reading this, but I would just tell our questioner here to say, well, actually, the whole idea 
of the presumption of validity of the sacrament because of the notoriety of a, the performance of a ceremony. That's Father Chicana's idea. That's not my idea. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that there is a presumption of validity when it is done by a duly authorized uh, public person in the church with re and, and carrying out his official duties. And I think that's a matter of record in the church's history. Mm -hmm. But what Father Chicada is saying is, a, is clearly an invention that is not in the history of the church. And just because the performance of a sacrament has been, it becomes notorious, you must automatically accept it as being valid. Mm -hmm. And Father, even more basic than that, isn't this, uh, can this just be a simple matter of, of common sense that we see in everyday life where someone is licensed and certified and authorized to do some sort of work, there is much less need to inspect that work uh, rather than, than someone who is not licensed, not certified, or not authorized to do this work and just kind of does it on, on a whim, of course, there would be more proof required uh, to show that that work was done correctly and properly. Well, I mean, here you have Archbishop Took, okay? He was an author, a true Archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church, okay? When he consecrated bishops uh, in his capacity, in his official capacity, there was no question about them, sure. okay? But none of that applies to this, right. okay? Could he validly consecrate bishops? He could, okay? He had the power to yeah. do so. Uh, but we have these extraordinary situations here where he was actually functioning uh, on his own recognizance, okay? Under very unusual circumstances. And uh, as, as we found out when Father Sanborn and Father Kelly at the time and I went to talk to the two men who were present, for example, with the consecration of Garde Laurier, the, when that rite was performed, they were the only witnesses there. We thought, okay, it should be a very simple matter uh, just to go and verify with them that the correct matter and the correct form, and as far as we could tell, the correct intention was implied. We thought it was a simple matter of going and asking them um, to find out if the essentials for a valid sacrament were present there, based upon their eyewitness testimony. And these men could not provide that. And they told us they could not provide this. They told us they were not witnesses. They could not tell us what the correct matter and form was. They were not instructed in this. Um, they were not engaged as witnesses. And in fact, they were incapable of testifying to it. But what the problem was, Further, what they did testify to cast serious doubt on the whole ceremony. Um, but the, the performance of the sacrament, as Father Jagata refers to it, was interrupted. Uh, Archbishop Lefebvre was very confused. Arch, Archbishop I'm Took, I'm sorry. Archbishop, Archbishop Took was very confused, um, invoking the name of John Paul II as authorizing the ceremony. Okay? After Gerard Laurier has already informed him, I would not accept consecration from you if you did it in the name of John Paul II. Then Archbishop Took was repeatedly invoking the name of John Paul II, and Archbishop Took was objecting to it. That's what these men testified. Uh, there was even a question of simity when we asked him, well, why would Archbishop Took do such consecrations as, let's say, Gerard Laurier? And uh, these men said, well, Archbishop Took was very poor. He had very little money. And that, 
that certainly opened up a, a whole line of questioning that we did not pursue because we were kind of shocked by that. But uh, it certainly raised some, some eyebrows, and it should raise some eyebrows. So, uh, in any case, um, we, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is we're the ones who performed the due diligence here. We went and we talked to the men who were present there in an honest effort to get the evidence we needed, okay? The simple testimony of those who were present there. Basic, basic thing that anybody would do if there was any question at all, okay? And not this supposed absurd presumption that Father Chicago wants to rest on, wants to rest the validity on. And, um, and this could not be verified. None of these elements, not the matter, not the form, not the intention, none of these things could be verified. And the testimony they gave undermined undermined, certainly, uh, Archbishop Tooks, what they'd call, what Father Chiara calls, the, the tiny minimum mentality, or whatever he calls it, uh, it certainly raised that question. <clears throat> Again, you know, when we left the room and we were driving back to Frankfurt, and I asked Father Sanborn, you know, what do you think of this? And Father Sanborn answered me, uh, and I think it was the right answer, that although he personally believed that Gerard Laurier could testify reliably with regard to the validity of the consecration he received, um, that he could not base his public actions on that and have people risk their souls on that, on his personal confidence in Gerard de Laurier. As it turned out, Gerard de Laurier I did not even get a, a certificate certifying the fact that the ceremony had been performed. And as a matter of fact, he had a brain tumor that eventually killed him. So uh, he was very abstract. Uh, didn't seem to have a lot of practical <laughs> So, I mean, um, the fact is, you know, might there have been a validly performed sacrament at the time uh, and might Gerard Laurier have been validly consecrated? And the answer is yes, he might have been. But we can't really go on beyond that, and the Church doesn't presume the validity uh, when it is, you know, performed under such clandestine circumstances. There has to be testimony uh, for the sake of the souls that want to risk their salvation and the validity of their sacraments on it. Mm -hmm. That that is just so so much common sense. Uh, it is just Catholic Church sense, you know, that. Uh, this this constant uh, insistence that uh, notoriety, um, the notoriousness of let's say the performance of a of a sacramental ceremony must be deemed valid when it becomes notorious is it is absurd. Okay. Um, anyway, so <laughs> what more can I say? But I would say to, to our writer there, if you want to go to the whole question of the presumption of validity, the pr a principle of presumption of validity, go back to what Father Chicada has written. That's where you have to start looking mm -hmm. for uh, some kind of, uh, what should I say, verification that, that really is a principle of the Church, and I think you'd find it's not. I'm sure you'd find it's not. Yeah. 
right. Uh, well, Father, one other brief question on the Tuck Bishops. Um, this viewer says that many of his friends and relatives attend parishes serviced by Tuck line priests and bishops. He says, my instincts tell me that these priests and pastors do not possess valid orders, but I am told that there are different Tuck lines and some are, quote, cleaner than others. And this is very, very confusing, Father, so can you clarify and advise? Well, it's interesting he used the word cleaner because Father Sanborn himself at one point said we can't have nothing to do with the Tuck bishops because they are assorted. And after he was unable to find any other bishops who were willing to... Uh, uh, shall we say, cooperate with him in his plans, then he decided, and he said this also, that now we have to accept a certain amount of sordidness. Okay? We have to accept a certain amount of sordidness. Not all of us were willing to do that. Okay? But he said it. You know, sordidness, cleanliness, and all that. He talks about cleaner. But the cleanness of it is not what makes it valid or invalid. Okay? Um... Validity is a matter of matter and form and intention, right? And um, so uh, cleanness means more along the lines of it being legitimate, okay? So, uh, I mean, even a Jean Lavary, a notorious homosexual activist in Paris who made his living delivering beer, there's nothing wrong with that, but I mean, that doesn't really qualify him for being a Catholic bishop, right? Um <clears throat> Uh, you know, he could be he could be validly consecrated a bishop. He, however sordid that would be, it could he could be validly consecrated a bishop. So when the gentleman here, if it is a gentleman, asks about that, um, the cleanliness of it has nothing to do with the validity of it. The problem with the validity goes back to Archbishop Took himself. And what he did, and how he did it, and how he performed this, and what he manifested about that minimum mental, mental, whatever, whatever Foster Connick refers to it tiny as. Tiny mental minimum? The tiny mental minimum <laughs> that he refers to. Um, I, I think he's, he's uh, making it a lot tinier and more minimal than it really is, should be, or has to be, you know. Uh, to give us not just confidence, but certitude. Um, that's the problem. It, it goes back to Archbishop Took himself and his erratic behavior. I think, uh, I think uh, Father Barbara said it very well back then. I've said it before. He said it uh, himself, that there are three possible positions we can take with regard to the Took consecrations. One is that um, they, they were valid, but they were gravely criminal because of the fact that they were so illegal. They were not only sins, but they were crimes against the church. The people here, here many of the people he consecrated were not even, you know, at, at least he claimed to have consecrated, who claim, they claimed he consecrated. Um, were not Catholics, and in the eyes of the Church, they were certainly unworthy men. I mean, Pope Pius XII even referenced this question of consecrations that were contra omne fas. In the encyclical he wrote in 1958 about the consecrations done by the Communist Chinese in China, 
some, certainly something that Archbishop Took would have been aware of, how uh, 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 Pope Pius XII condemned these. He had issued an automatic excommunication about, uh, toward these things. <clears throat> and he talked about the consecration of just notoriously unworthy men. So Archbishop Took certainly did that. He, he quote-unquote, performed consecration ceremonies for those who were certainly unworthy men in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Now that was notorious. You want to talk about notoriety. And uh, that's why Father Barbara said, okay, if we, if we say they're valid, then they were crimes for which he would be excommunicated. I didn't make that up. I mean, Archbishop, uh, Father Barber brought this question up at first. And then uh, Father Barber said a second position we could take is that they, they were not done in a way that they would be valid, which means that they would not necessarily be criminal because they were invalid, but they would still be invalid, you know. So, again, there was no real valid consecrations done in the first place, so that would take away the criminal uh, aspect of what Archbishop uh, Took did, but in the taking that away, it would only be because it would remove the, there would be you no know, valid conse consecrations done. And the third choice that Father Barber gave was, we cannot know whether it was the one or the other. We just don't know. Whether they were valid or not, whether they therefore were criminal or not, we just don't know. And it was clear that Father Barbara gravitated toward the third position. We just don't know, and we can't know. Now, later on, Father Barbara got so frustrated with Archbishop Lefebvre that he said that he, he decided to throw his lot in with the Tooks because we have to break the stranglehold of Archbishop Lefebvre and the Society of St. Pius X on the traditional bishops. Now, I would, I would suggest that that motive of, um, let's say, going with the validity of Archbishop Took's consecrations was a very, very poor uh, motive, okay? That that offers you nothing except for the fact that Father Barbara was himself uh, off the beam there somewhat and thinking, well, this is the way we have to do it. We have to admit the validity of the Turk consecrations because otherwise all we have is the, 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 the Lefebvre consecrations. What kind of an argument is that? <laughs> but, you know, our Father Barbara wasn't actually coming out and saying so. But if you hearken back to what he had previously said, if we admit the consecration of the Turk, uh, the Turk bishops, then we're saying that Archbishop Turk was a criminal, subject to the penalties of the church for doing this, and was excommunicated. That's, a, that's what he said was a necessary consequence of granting the validity to these things. So um, I guess in his own mind, if uh, Father Barbara resolved the matter because we, he just felt compelled um, to grant the character of validity to them, he was also granting the character of criminality to them. And the church's, uh, uh, you know, censure of excommunication to them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the, what we're dealing with here, and it's, it's a very ugly thing. So I would just tell our, our writer here, look, um, 
No, there there is no uh, uh, different. There are no different categories of two consecrations. They all fall back into the same category of being doubtful, and if if uh, quote unquote valid, then criminal. And the church herself has actually told us what that means. Has spelled that out for us. Mm-hmm. In 1951, uh, Pope Pius XII through the Holy Office, uh, made a decree about that, uh, about such consecrations, and he, def- he explained that decree in his uh, encyclical of 19, uh, 50, uh, 1958, right, about the consecrations being done by the communists in China. <clears throat> and uh, he... Um, he, the expression he used then, contra omne fas, is very interesting because there are those who might interpret the decree of the Holy Office in 1951 as applying to the consecration of traditional Catholic bishops now. Someone might try to apply that to Archbishop Lefebvre and his consecrations or Bishop Mendez and his consecration of Bishop Kelly. But when you look at the law, you have to understand it as it was given by the one who made the law, okay? And uh, Bishop, uh, rather, uh, Pope Pius XII, commenting on that very law that was laid down uh, by and incorporated into canon law, um, the 1951 law, he explains that it refers to those who act contra omne fas. What does that mean? It means against all basically against all tradition, against all Catholic practice. Now, it is not against all Catholic practice for one bishop to consecrate another. Uh, In fact, for the first 600 years of the Church's existence, that's how bishops were consecrated. And the Holy See was notified after the fact because of persecutions and difficulties and communications and so on. It was actually enshrined in the decrees of the of the Council of Nicaea, that this is how the bishop should act, if a bishop would die. Not only were they instructed to call together the bishops of the, the area, the province, and so on, and choose uh, not only name a successor, but consecrate him, and actually put him in place in a diocese, okay? Uh, or put him in place in a, actually ruling as a bishop, as the ordinary of, a, of an area, a territory, and the souls contained therein without the approval of the Holy See in advance. I mean, this was, this was standard operating procedure in the early centuries of the Church. So you can't say that it was contra omne fas for one bishop to consecrate another. So the fact that one traditional bishop today would consecrate another certainly is not contra omne fas, as, our, as Pope Pius XII said that that decree of 1951 was intended. Okay, But... Um, but for a bishop to consecrate a non-Catholic a bishop or some un- notoriously unworthy individual because of, well, for example, homosexual activism, because he had already been left the church to be consecrated a bishop for a non-Catholic church, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that would certainly make someone yeah. unworthy, right? And that's what Archbishop took in. It's a matter of record. Everyone concedes the fact that he did this, even his supporters. 
So certainly, um, if the very least you can say is if these consecrations were, were valid, and they can't be presumed to have been valid, but if they were, then Archbishop Took certainly was subject, as Father Barbara said, to the censures of the Church. It's excommunication for that, automatic excommunication, most specially reserved to the Holy See. That's serious business. You don't make Catholic bishops that way. So, anyway, we've been over this before, right? But uh, hopefully, you know, it still serves a purpose right. because there are still questions. I understand yeah, absolutely. that. Absolutely. And they're very legitimate questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Father, I think we can safely switch topics now. Um, we had um, an email regarding the apostolic blessing, which we talked about on a recent program. And uh, a viewer wrote in and said, Thank you so much, Father Jenkins, for your explanation of the incredible blessing, apostolic blessing. I wonder if you could explain more about uh, why the plenary indulgence gained by this blessing is good for life. How can that be? What if the person recovers and goes on to lead a sinful life? Uh, one other thing you said when talking about the apostolic blessing was uh, that a non-Catholic could be absolved. Did you buy, provide a bit more info on that, Father? How can a non-Catholic be absolved? <clears throat> well, there, there are two questions there. I'll try to be brief. To, okay. um, as far as the apostolic benediction, uh, the Church itself has decided that that blessing will remain with you and become active when you die, okay, upon your death. Um, does that mean that if one dies in a sinful state, that they're going to... Go straight to heaven? Of course not. Of course not. There's no question of that. The apostolic benediction uh, carries within a plenary indulgence. Indulgences are not forgiveness for sin. Okay? Sins have to be forgiven. If one is in the state of mortal sin, if one is in the state of venial sin, okay, one, one has to receive both for mortal sin, either a perfect act of contrition, repentance for mortal sin, or sacramental absolution valid absolution of the sacrament of penance to be forgiven the mortal sins. If one dies in the state of unrepentant mortal sin, um, then that person goes to hell. Okay? Whether they receive the apostolic benediction or not. <clears throat> now you know that in order to gain a plenary indulgence, there are requirements of the church. Okay? Uh, we know this with all souls, which we just celebrated that uh, not only do you have to do the, the act of the, the six Our Fathers and Hail Marys and Glory Bees, that's just the, the outward act, okay? Uh, but you have to be in the state of grace. You have to receive our Lord worthily in Holy Communion within the week, make a sacramental confession, be absolved within the week. But beyond that, you have to have your mind made up, your will made up against all habits of venial sin. You have to have made up your mind you're going to overcome and be very serious in your efforts to overcome habits of even venial sin. Now that sets the bar very high to gain a plenary indulgence. <clears throat> so if one receives, now this is another aspect of it, this is not just gaining a plenary indulgence for a soul in purgatory, we're talking here about one in danger of death receiving the apostolic benediction and uh, the, having the plenary indulgence um, that for the temporal punishment due to sin in purgatory, right, being taken away. 
all of it being taken away. If you apply those same conditions to one's own soul, and that this is what you need to have <clears throat> when you die with the apostolic benediction in order to receive that plenary indulgence, that's a full indulgence for all of the temporal punishment due to sin, clearly there is a very high standard there to have that indulgence actually remove all temporal punishment due to sin. Right? So no, if one goes on to live a sinful life, that soul can certainly die in the state of wars. That soul could also die with venial sins on its soul without the necessary repentance for sin, such that they would have the intention to even overcome all habits of venial sin. And they would still have purgatory to do. So, um, no, the, the church is not giving anybody a free pass. Like, um, get out of purgatory free card here. It's not that at all. Okay. Does that help yeah. clarify things a bit? But also with regard to absolving uh, um, or, or what it was absolving those. Absolving non Catholics. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes um, you're asked to absolve someone. Uh, we go to a hospital and they talk about somebody not being a Catholic. It's not something that you really talk about too much because people have a hard time understanding how it can possibly be. But um, if you have someone who's validly baptized, that's the question. They have to be validly baptized. Technically speaking, if they are validly baptized, they are actually subject to the church. And uh, uh, if they're validly baptized, um, they might well be considered like a person who was validly baptized and had been excommunicated from the church. If you have somebody who is validly baptized and is considered a non-practicing Catholic and was even excommunicated from the church and they're unconscious and you were asked to absolve them um, by a relative or something, could you conditionally grant them absolution in the hopes that they actually receive the grace of repentance? Uh, well, if you if you had the evidence necessary to say that they were validly baptized, and that's not easy to come by necessarily, um, you could. You know? If they were a fallen away Catholic, if they were excommunicated from the church for whatever reason, let's say they joined the Masons or something, right? And they were dying. And, you know, you, you had some kind of testimony that they um, had repented of that. Could you validly uh, grant, you know, a conditional absolution to them? And could it be effective that it could obtain forgiveness of sins if they had repentance for it? Uh, yes, you could do that. Um, if you have somebody who's outside the church but validly baptized, again, technically speaking, all of those who are validly baptized are subject to the church's law. And by the very fact that they are validly baptized, they could receive sacraments. A validly baptized person could actually make an abjuration of error enter the church. You would have a conditional baptism for them, but if they were validly baptized, that conditional baptism would not be the baptism. Their original baptism would be their condition, would be their real baptism, okay? That's why you baptize them conditionally. 
when they enter the church, because you recognize they could be validly baptized already. And the fact is that if you're baptized, the first condition for receiving a sacrament is that you be validly baptized. So yes, they could be absolved if they were truly repentant of their sins. Um, so it's, it's making an, an active uh, confidence in the mercy of God, is what it is. Uh, and the church, in, in her mercy, is willing to, to grant that much. Good. Very good. Obviously, you can't go through uh, the hospital ward just conditionally absolving everybody in sight. You know, there has to be some foundation for it, right? Even granting conditional absolution. Mm. You have to have at least testimonial evidence that somebody was, was baptized. Hmm. Okay. But in any case, you could never absolutely absolve, you know. It would, it would have to be always conditional. Right. Right. right, very good. Thank you, Father. Uh, we had another question. Um, can the souls who are in limbo pray for us? Well, that's a good question, because we know the souls in purgatory can. At least, you know, we have, a, that's the tradition of the church. The souls in limbo are in the state of grace. The souls of Lin in limbo are in the state of grace. And for that reason, they can pray for us. The souls, I'm sorry, the souls in purgatory, did I say sure. that? The souls in purgatory are in the state of grace. And for that reason, they can pray, Okay. Um, can they satisfy for their own sins? No, in the sense that the time that they could gain grace, merit, and uh, let's say they are in purgatory for the sake of expiating their sins, right? Now, they can't gain indulgences in purgatory for themselves, but we can, okay? Um, but it is commonly understood that they can pray for us, and many saints have testified that to that, and there are many uh, stories in the church about saints in purgatory interceding for us and, and begging God's mercy for us here on earth, too. But the souls in limbo are not in the state of grace. Um, if they were, they would be in purgatory. Okay? But they have not been absolved of original sin, so to speak, by baptism, okay? They, uh, therefore, are in limbo. We talked about this uh, some number of shows ago, about a theological opinion of biblical exegetes, that when, as we read in the book of the Apocalypse, uh, God creates the new heaven and the new earth, that after the resurrection, that the souls in limbo reunited now, with bodies, okay, in their natural perfection, um, in their maturity, will populate the earth, the new earth, okay? Um, but that is a theological opinion, right? But the fact is that they cannot see God in heaven precisely because uh, they left this world without the sanctifying grace necessary to save their souls the supernatural grace necessary to save their souls. Um, so the church's teaching uh, by her tradition is that because they committed no personal sin, the only thing that stands against them is the sin of nature, and that is original sin. 
they are not in the state of sanctifying grace and do not have the divine life in them, but they have the natural human life, and they have the use of natural reason, and they have the use of uh, the will, human will, and um, they um, can, they, they therefore do not suffer, okay? And what knowledge they have of God, they have as a natural knowledge of God by the power of human reason to know him, which is actually superior, you might say, to even the great theologians, so to speak. One might argue that question, you know, about what natural knowledge they could have of God. But they still do have the darkness of the intellect and the darkness of the will that is the result of original sin. They just still do have that too. Um, but having no personal sin of their own, they've done nothing, they've willed nothing to ratify original sin or the sin of Adam. That puts them in a very special category, you know. So they do not have to suffer for any personal sins. Um, can they pray for us, though? If they're not in the state of grace, they cannot pray for us. Um, nor, and for that matter, can we actually pray for them. We, we can pray that somehow a God in his goodness provides for them, uh, somehow, you know, uh, the grace that we, you and I cannot give, obviously. You know, we can't give any grace. Only God can give it. So, you know, we can pray for God's mercy for that, that somehow um, they receive that grace. But we have to be uh, accepting of the fact that the church's traditional teaching is uh, that they uh, are in limbo because they did not die in the state of grace. And uh, dying with original sin still on their souls, they cannot enter the beatific vision of God. Uh, that theirs, theirs will be a place of natural happiness, um, but because they are not in the state of grace, I think generally, I'm giving my opinion on that now, I want to make it clear, because they are not in the state of grace, that they cannot actually offer a prayer to God on our behalf. Yeah. I think that's what the church would say, but I don't know where it is said that. If there's something to the contrary that the church has pronounced on, I would like to know. There is a very fine biblical exegete, um, a scholar, uh, Cornelius Elapide, whom we refer to, a 16th century uh, biblical scholar who writes very, very well on the subject, very clearly, refers to the teachings of the fathers of the church, and it would be worth consulting him on this question. And I, I make this pledge to you that I will consult him on this very question. And if I find something... Contrary to what I'm saying here, I will certainly get back to you about that. Okay. But I don't think the souls in limbo are in the position to pray for us. Okay. Well, Father, perhaps we can end with that, unless you have anything else. You'd like well, to... I don't know, Tom, you've got quite a stack there. Is I it have, possible have, we can quickly proceed through a few more? It's up to well, you. Well, you tell me, Father. <laughs> um, okay, then... Well, you tell me you have uh, quite a few questions, you know, backlogged here. So. I do. Okay. Well, this is a great one, Father, then. Um, we had a viewer who wrote in asking about uh, the Father Fahey book, The Mystical Body of Christ in the Modern World. He said he's, he's currently reading the book and found it very illuminating. Um, he has some questions, though, after uh, reading through the book. He says, um, 
Given that the founding of the United States of America was rooted in Protestantism and has a had a Masonic view on authority, that it comes from below and not above, wasn't the country destined to radicalize as it has? He says, how do you understand or explain the founding of the United States as a Catholic? Was it something noble or just another step on the road towards the disorder we are experiencing now? Well, there's no doubt about it that the, the minds that uh, were behind the establishment of the, the, uh, uh, the United States of America were influenced by the Enlightenment, right? Yeah. There's no doubt about that, so-called Enlightenment. But the fact is they had a, a, a very secure, some of them at least, uh, had a very secure grasp of the natural law. We read that in the Declaration of Independence. They saw that the rights that we have as human beings come from God, right. and they are not privileges granted by any government. Right. <clears throat> they also saw that God gives human beings the right to choose their government. Okay, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine made that very clear. There's nothing uh, in there that actually contradicts uh, St. Robert Bellarmine and, or St. Thomas Aquinas, except they, they failed... Uh, to acknowledge our Lord Jesus Christ himself as the king of uh, the social kingship of Christ, all mankind. They did not. They stopped short of that. And this was a fatal flaw, no doubt about it. So, um, you know, the fact is that what we see in the uh, foundation of the United States of America, its foundational documents, and the history of our country we see a struggle between two great principles. We see that the Catholic Church was growing dramatically in the early days of the church with an enormous number of converts. Converts, I mean, by the thousands coming into the church, right? Uh, the seminaries were burgeoning uh, across the United States up into the 1950s. Seminaries, I mean, they had 25, basically, at the time of Vatican II, when Vatican II hit, there were 25,000 candidates for the priesthood and the seminaries for the secular priesthood, diocesan priesthood, and another approximately 25,000 candidates for the priesthood for the religious orders, just in this country alone. And, uh, I mean, the church found very fertile ground here uh, among the, the not you know, even among the Protestants who are converting to the Catholic Church, basically, in droves, really. Um, and um, there, was a, there was a reason for that. There was... There was Let's put it this way, the Catholic, the, 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 United, the United States of America was established in such a way that her foundational principles were not contrary to the church. Right. They were not inimical to the church. And the church found fertile ground here. That couldn't be said for the Freemasonic governments of Europe, which were persecuting the church in every, every turn. Okay? And that's why <coughs> Pope Leo XIII found... Um, the United States of America to be such so promising field for the church here, while the Masonic governments that took over, uh, took power in Europe were persecuting the church just savagely. The church was not persecuted here. Yes, by the APA, by Protestants individual, by the Ku Klux Klan, and yes, of course. <coughs> but the fact the laws of the country protected the church, that's a fact and protected the church against these very anti-Catholic movements that were here. <clears throat> uh, Pope Leo XIII acknowledged that fact, even referred to Washington as the Great Washington. 
Um, but uh, then, of course, in Longinqua Oceani, a very, an encyclical very much worth reading, 1895, I think it was Pope Leo XIII, he praised America as being not hostile to the church. In 1899, I think it's uh, where he wrote Testament of Valencia, he wrote about the danger within the church here of modernism, right? He didn't refer it to it as modernism, but he called it Americanism. Um, and he recognized a danger that was here, but that was in the church. But he wasn't criticizing the country for it. He was criticizing uh, basically what it came down to, the American bishops and clergy for being prone to canonize the American system, uh, which is very wrong, obviously. So um, because of all the fact of the defects of it, you know, and uh, one might say the American system had a lot of good things about it, but it wasn't the Catholic faith. It wasn't Catholicism. So necessarily it had those defects and represented a certain danger too. But in any case, um, the fact is that the church did find for a very, for liberty. The church found liberty here to function. And insofar as she found liberty, very different from what she found in the Roman Empire, very different from what she found in the Freemasonic governments of uh, Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment uh, Europe. Um, we saw that this was the best circumstance the church had found in the, in the so-called New World to grow. And if things had progressed as uh, with the promise that they first showed, if it hadn't been for Vatican II, the United States of America could be a Catholic nation right now. Uh, one could have developed on the basis of the stated principles that were given there in our foundational documents. Because even though there was not a formal declaration of the kingship of Christ, there was no denial of it either. No formal denial of it. Um, <clears throat> that if our society had in fact become truly a Catholic society, could have actually functioned as one, too. So anyway, um, were there flaws? Yeah, absolutely. Were there um, essential things missing? Um, yes, there were, you know, in, in the foundation of our country. But I, I, I go back to um, uh, actually after the First World War when there was a, a, a very... Uh, what should I say, just savage effort, almost, to compel the United States to enter the League of Nations. The League of Nations truly a Masonic ideal. I mean, the Masons made, made no secret about it, that they wanted to organize mankind into a League of Nations that would be anti-God, or godless, right? At least, and uh, the United States steadfastly resisted all pressure to sacrifice the sovereignty of its principles. Notably, the Catholic concept of a nation state being derived, deriving its, its existence from God and being beholden to God and having the purposes of maintaining the God-given rights of its population, and so on. 
that the United States uh, Congress would not surrender that. I think there were uh, 183 nations around the world that subscribed to the uh, League of Nations, and the United States would not yield to it. It's practically the only nation, it was the only great nation that refused to join, despite the Masonic pressure to join. Uh, I think one of the, the Lodge, I think Cabot, one of the Cabots really stood against that. A Catholic family, actually. Uh, going back to English Puritan times, right? Uh, stood against that and led the charge against it. So, you know, to, to just say, well, Ma America was a Masonic nation from the beginning. It wasn't that simple. It just wasn't that simple. There were a lot of forces, a lot of voices at work here. And to say that, uh, um, you know, Carroll, right, um, the, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, to say that he deliberately and willfully signed on to what he knew to be a Masonic enterprise, I think is unfair to him. And to say that all of the Catholics who took part in uh, fighting for our nation were in... in involved in creating this Masonic monstrosity, I, I think that's, that's wrong. It's just not fair. It's not right. Um, do they recognize the shortcomings? Yes, certainly they did. Do they see, though, that the church could breathe and could function and could try, could triumph here? I think they saw that, too, yeah. That the liberty was there to allow that to happen. And the church would at least be protected by law here. Uh, for her enemies. So, um, again, I think that's an oversimplification mm -hmm. to simply say America was a Masonic nation, ab initio, from the, from the cradle. Um, there's more involved in that. But anyway, so go on. Okay. Uh, well, Father, I think we can close with that. Anything okay, else you'd like to add? Sure. <laughs> well, yeah, I yield. Okay. I, I yield to higher wisdom here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. I know our viewers do as well. We get uh, all kinds of great emails every single day and um, always thanking you for your good work. So. Well, Tom, I, I thank them too. I want to mention too, with regard to the exemption, religious exemption letters for against the this uh, <clears throat> toxic uh, vaccine that they uh, are mandating, imagine the United States of America being governed by mandate, imperial mandate. I mean, how is this even possible that people are accepting this? As, except, uh, that they're accepting it. That now we're being ruled by mandate? Just an, uh, even just the suggestion of a mandate? Even the suggestion of it by a, a resident Biden or anyone? I mean, if, 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 if uh, Donald Trump had tried to rule by mandate, can you imagine the woke crowd, they would go berserk at the idea, right? But they've got their woke, well, if he is woke, if he's awoke at all, if somebody would awaken him, <laughs> President Biden up there, you know, saying, I'm going to institute mandates, and everybody snaps to attention, um, as though they're saying, you know, sig heil to him, uh, <clears throat> that yes, now everybody has to line up, roll up their sleeves, and shut up, and just take, take this uh, injection. I mean, it's just incredible. They call it science? No, it's not science at all. It's anti-science. Um, but it's certainly anti-American, no doubt about it. Um, it's just incredible 
to me that uh, this could be happening and people could be suffering this to happen, really. Uh, it's the complete subversion, not only of all Catholic principles, it's the complete subversion of all American principles, really, to, to uh, have that happen. Um, so I understand that uh, there are those who, from religious principle, matters of conscience, would have to say no to it, okay? And we're getting requests, uh, I think you were getting them through emails and so on. You know, the problem is that, that uh, we still, we, although we still have in this country, thank goodness, the, the right to object on the basis of religious principles, and we have to use that, we have to insist on that. If we don't, we will forfeit it, and it'll be our own fault. So we have to insist on that right on what they call sincerely held religious and principles of matters of conscience to refuse this. That I cannot testify to the sincere religious convictions of anybody I don't know. And so we might have, and we do have thousands of listeners to the program who do have sincerely held religious convictions and matters of conscience that impel them to, re to refuse these vaccines, so-called. But if I don't know them, I cannot write a letter testifying to those sincerely held religious convictions because I can't testify to what I don't know. This is a problem. And if I started testifying to what I don't know, that undermines the validity of all the, all the letters I might issue to those I do know. Right? But... What I'd like to do is at least say, I, I, can, I can issue a letter s stating, based upon inquiries, kind of a generic letter, although I can't say, you know, so-and-so, uh, you know, is a traditional Catholic and has the traditional Catholic convictions, and I know that firsthand, and I can testify to that. I can uh, actually issue a letter under my signature that just testifies to what the traditional Catholic position is, and they could attach that to their personal statement. Remember, any letter that I would issue, or any priest or any clergyman would issue, is only a, a, a backup, right? It's only a supporting letter. What really people need is they need to issue a statement of their own, stating their own personally held, sincerely held religious convictions, their position and conscience why they have to refuse the vaccine. Any letter that I wrote will mean nothing whatsoever without that statement from the individual. And any letter that I would write or anyone else would write in their favor would merely be a supporting document to say this is a traditional Catholic position and might lay out what they say they, they hold to. But they're the ones and they're the only ones who can testify to what they personally believe and hold sacred. So if anybody's looking for a, like a, a religious exemption letter that will speak for them or in their place, they're making a mistake. It doesn't work that way. For example, I mean, I know somebody who was, I was told, refused a religious exemption. And I was asked to write a, a letter for them. And so I said, well, you know, I... I I don't know why they were refused, and then I found out that 
their mother wrote the letter for them. Their mother said, I want my daughter, because of her sincerely held religious convictions, to be exempt from the vaccine. Well, no wonder that was refused. Because a mother, you know, they don't want to hear from the mother testifying to the daughter's sincerely held religious conviction. They want to hear from the daughter herself. If they're her convictions, she has to write this herself. So I said, unless the daughter herself writes a very convincing letter stating her religious convictions, then any letter I wrote would be of no value whatsoever. Because all I can do is write a letter supporting that this is the traditional Catholic teaching. And she has to insist, this is what I believe. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, people who are asking for these religious exemption letters have to understand that only they can testify to their sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, I, I, can, I can say that I, I'm convinced that they have them, okay, uh, but I can't say that for them. Um, as far as writing a letter for, for people I don't know, I can still issue some kind of statement of what the traditional Catholic position is. Mm -hmm. In fact, I asked a very seasoned uh, attorney to prepare a letter of that very fact. And uh, he provided that for me because I thought this is actually considered to be kind of a legal matter. And um, he would understand, uh, kind of bring together the statement of religious principle with a legal statement uh, to make it, uh, shall we say, accessible to the legal mind, you know, and impressive to the legal mind. He would put it in legal terms. And in fact, I think he did a very good job of it. Because I must say that of the dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, exemption letters that I've written, we've had very high success. Good. And I think it's precisely because the people who are getting these are thinking in terms legalistically, and they're saying, okay, this I understand, why this in a legal way testifies to sincerely held religious conviction. Um, and backs up what the individuals are saying on their own behalf. So I want, I would be willing to provide that, and I could in good conscience provide that. Mm -hmm. um, but as I say, it's only a supporting role. The individual has to testify in his or her own statement, convincingly, that this is their own personal convictions and conscience why they cannot take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you for doing that, Father. I know um, it takes a lot of time and effort. It does take a lot of time, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say as much as I can honestly say for each individual. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole range of individuals and my knowledge of them and how long they've been parishioners and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it does, Tom, but it's, it's important. I mean, they, we have to. We have no choice. There are those who say, well, I resent having to, to justify my religious convictions. I say, well, you don't have to justify religious convictions. All you're saying is, these are my sincerely hold, held religious convictions, and this is an opportunity for you to stand up for what you yeah. believe. And under the circumstances now, you have an obligation, a moral obligation, to stand up for what you believe. 
if you just brush yourself and say, well, they, they shouldn't even be doing this in the first place, and I'll say, well, I agree with you there. <clears throat> but when the, when the early Christians were called upon to testify for their faith, they didn't say, well, they had no business doing this in the first <laughs> place. I'm not going to talk to them about this. <clears throat> I don't owe them an explanation. The, the first Catholics on the face of the earth, the apostles and those who came after them, were very bold, and they looked for the opportunity to stand up and proclaim their faith and boldly, uh, uh, with great conviction, and that's what we have to do now. That's a great point. Though. And we still have a, we have the opportunity to defend. Thank goodness we do, and God help us if we don't defend it. Because how are we going to explain to God? Well, yes, I, it's true. Legally, in my country, I, I did have the right to profess my faith and stand on the basis of my religious convictions. But I thought they had no business inquiring anyway, so I didn't do it. And they're undercutting everybody then who wants to take a stand. No, we've got to stand together in this. Anyway, said my piece. Uh, one thing, pray for those who are ill. Pray for the deceased, please. All the supporters of what Catholics believe, pray for them and their... Their loved ones, we have a number who are gravely ill right now, and uh, certainly those among the deceased. Uh, in fact, I, I mentioned one, uh, Patrick Werrick, a young father of seven children, one newborn, who passed away last week. Uh, keep him and his family in your prayers, please. There are many others I could name, too, but God knows who they are. Pray for them, and God will bless them because of your charity. Absolutely. God bless you. And will bless you for it, too. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.